This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. I'm Keith Baker. And I'm Wayne Chang. And today, we have a little disclaimer for you. Published by the brilliant gnomes of House Civis, the illustrious volume exposes truths you wouldn't believe about the last war. You might think there's enough to satisfy you, dear readers, but there's more. This book also contains dice-fueled rules for reenacting thrilling events in the world of Eberron. Dice not included. Also, don't forget to recharge this book's magic with a dragon shard about once a week. If you don't, the book will turn back into a potato. And that's it, guys. Uh, we're done. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that was great. That was really good. <laughs> we should we should just do a new podcast with that voice. <laughs> It'll be like Fair News and Corvair. Yep. <laughs> yeah, News, news and it's, Corvair. I'll read all the articles. But, uh, right. It's the Cornberg Chronicle. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The podcast. Yes. Oh, now, man. if everybody hasn't figured it out, we are talking about and previewing Rising from the Last War. Yeah, and uh, so... I, we we did have Wayfinder's Guide before for fifth edition, but this is like technically the official official mm-hmm. Eberron for fifth edition. So that's it's really exciting. Uh, this is a really huge month. It's actually been a little bit more than a month since October, actually. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's been huge in terms of so much Eberron stuff coming out. Um, uh, at, at the time of this recording. They've already released, Wizards of the Coast had already released the Living Spells preview mm-hmm. of Rising, which I thought was really cool. I loved seeing that they're constructs. That was a really, really cool uh, minor change. Um, WizKids announced uh, a map uh, as well as some several other maps, accessories. Think, yeah. so, several maps, and I think a GM screen, and or is that Gale Force 9? I always forget. I think Gale Force 9 has the screen. That's right. Yes. And so then Gale Force 9 is doing the Warforged minis. Um, and then there's also uh, announced a whole new line of Eberron miniatures that's coming out in May. And I think it's something like 44 different miniatures. And I'm super curious to see what all ends up uh, oh, being yeah. in that. Uh, you know, I know that for just from what we've seen, uh, it seems quite clear that a lot of the things that are depicted, you know, a lot of the artwork from Rising from the Last War mm-hmm. is being used, but that's not making going to make up a full 44, uh, you know, largely medium creature set. Yeah. So I'm very curious if we'll get any iconic NPCs or things like that. I haven't actually anyway, seen the, the list yet. And this is the biggest the list that line. we've had for Eberron minis, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they've appeared the one in other actually, sets. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what was that, Wayne? I was saying this is the only one that's specifically Eberron because it's being yeah. like, like he said, mixed into other sets. Um, right. Plus, they have the the um, the source lead and the uh, source leads and the oh the the sky coach set. Sky the sky coach, coach yeah, the sky coach, yeah. which looks yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah, that's reenacting really, really the <laughs> reenacting the scene from uh, Sharn City of Towers. But I do have mm-hmm. to say, I am still sitting here looking at my Warforged uh, Titan and Sakura Quarry. Uh, from the old sets, uh, which are two of my favorite minis uh, of all time, but I'm very excited that they'll they'll have you know neighbors soon. Yeah. yeah. Quick footnote on that is I remember during the uh, celebrating 15 years, Bill was it Bill that mentioned 
that the the sky coach scene that Wayne yep, Reynolds yep. had painted was from, yep, his, was from campaign. his campaign. That is yep. correct. So I'm really curious how Bill is looking at that new miniature set. <laughs> you know, like is he just geeking out? Like, oh my god! Like that's that's the thing. You know. Well, the Sakura so. is the one for me where it's not like I was leaning over uh, Steve Prescott's shoulder and and describing it to him, uh, but it's first off just a really cool mini. Yeah. The the large size Sakura Quarry uh, from third edition, and it is something where I'm just like that came out of my brain, you know, and so it's just a lot of fun to have it there. Nice, very nice. So yeah, so uh, there's a lot going on with that. Um, and Wayne, you do you want to talk about Oracle of War? That's the new Eberron AL. Yeah. So um, if anybody who was at uh, Gamehole Con, they they know that Oracle of War has launched. It officially launches in December. I've gotten lots and lots of feedback from people in the community, said it's very, very good. Um, it's got its own admins. It's got its own track. Um, you know, some of the first reveals we had of the book were actually from that because people were basically taking pictures of the, the character sheets. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's I've heard it's very, very good. Um, I haven't played it yet. <laughs> I wasn't at GameHole Con. Um, but it's uh, it's gotten actually very very good reviews from both players and DMs. So nice. I think that worked really really well. Uh, looking forward to it, to it. It's uh, releasing one adventure a month starting in December. So for twenty months. Um, so basically two year campaign. Yeah. And last but certainly not least, uh, I think the last you guys have mentioned December is when we might be expo- expecting uh, exploring Eberron, which is fantastic timing. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and, and yeah, Exploring Eberron is uh, the book Wayne and I have been working on. And for me, it's very exciting. You know, basically it does two things. On the one hand, it's going to delve a little deeper into some things that are new to Rising from the Last War that, you know, sort of appear in Rising from the Last War and thus don't have a lot of, of depth Uh, As I say, a couple of topics I really like that we're going into more. And beyond that, in a large number, it's just things I've always wanted to write about with Eberron and simply never had the opportunity. So looking, for example, to the Plains, where I've always wanted to have a Plains of Eberron book. And yeah, it's not what this is. I mean, it's, it's still only a chapter. Uh, but it's still a chance to explore them in more depth than we ever have before. And uh, just having that opportunity to delve into a lot of different things that I really enjoy about the setting. And we just had uh, Don Basingthwaite on, on mm-hmm. the Goblinoids episode, and you got to do some more work with him for Exploring Eberron? Uh, we're going to be including, there's a section on goblins, and uh, the book will include the Goblin Bestiary. Nice. That he did most of the development on. Fantastic. And, you know, again, I'd love to, to do more work uh, with Don in the future and do some kind of really in-depth Goblin book. Uh, but this will, again, go deeper into the Takani than, uh, than has been done Previous. yet. Yeah, that's great. So there's a lot to be excited about, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to all of it personally. So, um, I mean, like... Your experience with working with with Wizards again, Keith, how's that been with Rising and and also working with James? Well, it's really exciting, again, working with James again, because, you know, that's the whole point of, uh, you know, of Eberron in the first place is it may have, I may have planted the first seed, 
But the world as we know it, as we talked about in you know our previous episode, really is the result of the the team up mm-hmm. between James and Bill and Chris and me, and of course in this edition, uh, Jeremy Crawford. Really, you know, over the last two editions, frankly, has come in and really sort of dug into the world. And uh, I will say, sadly, I didn't go up to Wizards this time. You know, that first time I had like a week in a room uh, with with the crew and we just did so much sort of brainstorming. Uh, but nonetheless, it was really wonderful working with James again and in part really looking at things and and sort of saying what are things we want to sort of bring a new look to. Uh, we'll be talking later about the more dwarves. Uh, which was, again, one of these topics that that James and Jeremy and I really sort of talked about and came up with an answer we really liked. And, uh, you know, again, I just love that opportunity. And uh, it's great working with all these people who really care about the world. Yeah, nice. (laughs) So uh, what do you guys say we dive in? Sure. We start talking about Rising from the Last War. To me, so, it's, it's yeah. you know, what I'm really interested in is is sort of going through and looking at uh, the things that are new and either new or changed and being able to talk a little about why we did them. Uh, I'll actually start out to say that the book opens up with a just introduction to the world of Eberron. And uh, this draws on some of the material from the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron. Uh, And in general, I'm really happy with how it expresses sort of the core ideas of Eberron to someone who doesn't know any of them at all. You know, pulp adventure, noir intrigue, the last war. And I'm very happy with a couple of the things that, that actually sort of made it into the final book that I wasn't sure would. Uh, so one of the little things is I love under Noir Intrigue, there's a whole sidebar on why do you owe someone 200 gold pieces? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just that idea of you want a quick story hook for a bunch of adventurers, you owe a bunch of money to someone for something. Yep. And it's that whole idea of, well, why would you voluntarily do something like this? It's because it's not about the, the you know the mechanics, the numbers. It's about the what's a cool story, and if you want to play that, I'm down on my luck and dang it, the Barmar clans you know put a price on my head. Mm-hmm. It's just a fun way to sort of say this is what makes a noir kind of story is that you are in a bad way, mm-hmm. um, and you know you do have regrets, you do you are in trouble. Likewise, one of the little details, but I'm still pretty happy about it, is the languages section in the introduction, uh, which not only sort of embraces the idea that Eberron has more common languages than are usually called out. So the idea, for example, that Goblin is really the common language of most of the monstrous races. So where a lot of creatures would uh, traditionally speak Orc or Giant, we're saying, well, if they're in Corvair, they probably speak Goblin. That, you know, you're basically speaking common to the five nations, Goblin, if you're in the West, and uh, just sort of playing to that. There's also a little bit in there as an optional rule that, again, I'm happy with of specifically calling out that uh, players and DMs should feel free to change 
uh, inherent racially assigned languages to fit your background. So if you're a Talenta, you know, if you're a halfling, but you were raised in the Moorholds, not in the Talenta Plains, you should probably speak common in dwarf, not common in halfling. Right. And that's a little thing, but I like having it called out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Actually, it's something that, that a lot of people uh, don't give second thought to as far as like where culturally you grew up or were raised or, or spent right. most of your life and what and, makes sense for the character's backstory. And, and to me, that's just part of the flavor of Eberron is, again, one of our points is that culture is more important than race. And that it's not just that you are an elf. It's, well, are you an elf from Arenal? Are you an elf from Sharn? Uh, and to me, that's just, you know, an important thing. And I'm glad that it, it made it in. Nice. Actually, one of the funny things about that. Um, so, obviously, we've been reading this for a while. Right? <laughs> yep. And um, it does say uh, on chapter, in page six, you know, mm-hmm. Abyssal is the common tongue of all yeah, things. Yeah, it does. Typos. <laughs> and I was like. But then you look at the exotic languages Eberron chart, which is on the other side. Abyssal is not included. <laughs> yeah, but F- Infernal is. Yeah, and Infernal that's is. the point: is it's a typo. Is basically the point is there is a single language for yeah. fiends, a single language for celestials, and it's mainly the point of that the differentiation between devil and demon is not as dramatic as it is in uh, Eberron. And in fact, most of the times you find them in the same place. So having them speak different languages would be a little odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it is a, a ironic little twist that they, they unite them to Abyssal in the, the text and then it's united okay. to Infernal in the, <laughs> uh, in the table. But the idea nonetheless is that unification. There's uh, a common like what, tongue for all feats. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Um, Moving yeah. on to chapter one. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's uh, there's some really cool changes uh, that have come up, um, not just since previous editions, but also since Wayfinders. Um, and so, for example, uh, one of the things we get for fifth edition, fifth edition actually, um, well, to be clear, we had these before in Volo's Guide. That's the mm-hmm. goblins and the orcs. However, orcs have been revised slightly. Well, and that's sort of the thing is, yes, yes, these things existed. But the point is, what I like is that chapter one recognizes the concept, which was there from the very beginning, but just never strongly supported in third edition, that orcs and goblins have a different role in Eberron. Mm -hmm. And that in particular, you know, goblins are a viable player character uh, option. And... It's that uh, – so they include the stats. As you said, it's orcs that are the ones that are actually different. If you already have Volos, you've already had these statistics for the, the goblins and the hobgoblins. We may be doing something else in Exploring Eberron, but we'll you know see that in a month. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, it is orcs. They've removed the intelligence penalty. They've made them more viable. Um, and – it is still that concept that these are things that fit in the setting and you should feel like you're, you can consider them as player characters. Right. Yeah. Right. And they're not, they're not weaker options. I think um, in Volos, it's specifically called out that these are different. They might be <clears throat> weaker options. Um, the orc traits, the basic change, um, remove the intelligence penalty. They have, um, <clears throat> they have more skill proficiencies now, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. And um, so it's it's basically what you expect. Um, you know, you're not playing a stupid orc, or you don't have to, anyways. Um, 
The other thing <clears throat> is for goblins is like like he said, we're specifically calling out that. By the way, goblins were here way before the humans were. Mm-hmm. Um, they are all over the place, and yes, there's city goblins, and there's Dakani, and there's there's some of the new tribes, um, but they've been here forever. They, they've been here longer than the humans have. It's time for them to, for you to realize, or for someone who maybe doesn't know everyone very well, these are common races. Mm-hmm. Seeing a goblin walking down the street anywhere <clears throat> is a common sight. It's it's no different than a halfling walking down the street. And uh, and it is that, you know, that exactly point that they fit in there. I do like someone called out that with primal intuition actually gives you quite a broad uh choice of skills for the orc but it doesn't include athletics and someone was noting oh you can have medicine and insight uh but not athletics but not that and you're you're dr orc uh but on the other hand that is kind of the point that the orcs of of eberron are not necessarily savage you know and uh they are powerful physically and passionate but and passionate but they are not inherently barbaric yeah i think it focuses on the environs that orcs mm-hmm. have traditionally come from yeah and i think that's what that skill is is, is pointing to um, not just them being savage brutes as right. typically portrayed mm-hmm. now it does include all the races that were in the wayfinder's guide mm-hmm. and all of them have been changed in some way so uh this was not something i was personally directly involved in uh, you know, I was working more on the lore side of things, uh, but it is the case that all of them were tweaked uh, according to feedback from uh, the surveys and things like that. Uh, I think the one that is most dramatically changed is, of course, the Warforged. Yep. And the, the, you know, the two big things that jump out, uh, subraces have been removed. And that's fine because the, you know, the second aspect to that is the fact that armor has changed, that the way armor works now is the way they handled it in fourth edition, where Warforged attach armor to their body. You can sort of think of it, you know, some, for some folks, this is something that feels like it's losing some of their flavor that part of the idea is that a Warforged doesn't wear armor, a Warforged is armor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing to me is to really don't just think of it as them putting on armor. It takes an hour for them to attach it. Once it's attached, it can't be removed until they choose to remove it. Um, and so to me, it really is like you're peeling off your skin and then fusing new skin over it. Um, one of the things that I talk about in Exploring Eberron as we get there is also the idea that with that in mind, bear in mind that in my opinion, most Warforged never do this, that it is not a comfortable or easy thing to do. It is simply that you can do it, but it is not just like a person putting on or taking off armor. While this inherently sort of loses a little bit of the cool flavor of they just are this suit of armor it does just make things so much easier in terms of interaction with class abilities with mm-hmm. feats yep. there were so many questions before of like well how does this work with you know heavy armor master or how does this work with this class feature and much as i loved 
the flavor of the previous idea. Mm-hmm. It is just mechanically uh, so much clearer. Yeah, yeah, doing it this way. I think there's there's a. I, I think I think that's exactly right. That there's especially if you want to play to different roles that you had maybe yeah. in the last war, mm-hmm. and this allows for that customization. Um, one interesting thing. It's a very small detail, but it says that the armor cannot be removed from a living, you know, like if they're living, yep. which opens up the door for stories about somebody who's like harvesting warforged armor, right? Yeah, that's actually true. Is technically that means you can take it off of them when they're dead. No, I like that. To me, that's that's you're peeling it off. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and so. And- well, I was going to say the other thing too about the you know changing armor so frequently. You got to carry that armor if you want to change it. Now the funny thing. So then the next aspect of it is that it uh, the sub races were dropped, but the funny thing is that the sub races themselves were a sort of outdated legacy, uh, which is to say that Wayfinder's Guide the mechanics did get changed in just the couple weeks before the book was was published. Mm-hmm. And originally, the sub-races had specific armor types. Yeah. The Juggernaut was heavy armor, mm-hmm. the Skirmisher was medium armor, the Envoy was light armor. And it was the final change that w- switched to the idea of versatile integrated protection, where they could change it. And that essentially, once you made that change, the sub-races were already not particularly balanced against each other. The juggernaut was never as compelling as the other options. And the reason for that is the juggernaut was heavy armor. You know, if you wanted heavy armor, you couldn't be an envoy. And so basically, once it's detached from the armor, it makes sense to me to drop the sub races. And they've made it versatile. You have a a floating plus one. You have, uh, you know, a flexible skill proficiency. Uh, you know, things like that. But uh, much as I liked those subrace concepts, uh, you know, it does, I do understand why they were removed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, for anybody who was basically <clears throat> kind of looking and asking, going, oh, I think, I I, I don't know how much Keith, uh, how much Christian has, has, has read through it, but uh, Keith and I both agree that <clears throat> we really like those subraces. Like we like those ideas. And I love the old integration, the, the old armor. Mm-hmm. Mechanically, it's not elegant. Um, mm-hmm. It's very difficult. It's a lot of things that people might be like, oh, compare it to the turtle. Well, that's something different. Mm-hmm. Um, while this is not the most interesting option, it is the most mechanically elegant one. It is the easiest one to integrate into the game. Um, and it's just a little bit um, just easier to do do this in general. Um, I, I don't get me wrong. I love the Warforged. Uh, if you look at page 36, when you get the book, um, let me just see who the artist is. Uh, Craig Spearing. Craig Spearing does an excellent, excellent um, Warforged. It's, it's I think, one of my favorite images in the book. Um, but yeah. It's now, just, I will say, yep. Oh, no, I'm just saying, that's it, I, yeah. I, I will say that one of the things I was very sad to lose in the process of losing the subraces was the Envoy... Uh, with the idea of the integrated tool, and the envoy was something that again that didn't exist in third, you know, the original third edition. It was something uh, I developed for Wayfinder's Guide, and I just liked that idea of Warforged, who had been designed for a specific purpose 
and had a tool built into their bodies. It makes sense to me that it's not something every Warforged would have. The common soldier shouldn't have it. But it was that idea of, oh, I'm a Warforged designed to be a cartographer or a bard and I have a built-in instrument or, you know, that it, it gave that sort of cool, unique flavor. Uh, so I'm, you know, I understand, again, why things were removed. I will say that that idea is something that uh, we are bringing back in our own way uh, in Exploring Eberron. So, you know, check that out. Mm. Um, before, we move on from, before we move on from Warforged, there's one thing I did notice, and people might not see it. You are immune to magical aging effects, <laughs> just so you know. Yeah, um. and that is a, a sort of throwaway side. Uh, you know, it's not called out as a feature. It's just underage. Uh, that is something that was always sort of part of the idea of in third edition, which had sort of aging effects. Warforged had no effects beyond middle age. That, you know, there's always been this idea that we don't know, as far as we know, Warforged could be immortal. We don't know, in part because they've only been around 30 years. Uh, and it's that idea that you could technically find a Warforged from the Age of Giants. Um, but yeah, it is a bonus. If you run into a ghost and you're Warforged, you're okay. <laughs> Doesn't do anything. So... Uh there, there's been a little bit of a change to dwarves now as well. Nothing significant, like statistically or anything, but to the story of dwarves. Now, so, I think this is actually a really good one because dwarves historically have been a little bit criticized for being kind of mm -hmm. too similar to traditional fantasy. But go ahead, Keith, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the case. And, and this is something that is touched on here. It, gone, it goes into deeper... Uh, in chapter two, and hopefully we'll go uh, get even more development in the future. Uh, it is something where, as I said, this was something that Jeremy and James and I all sort of sat down with because, you know, I've always sort of had that, that, that people have always said like, oh, they really love the gnomes and they think the elves are really interesting, but the dwarves just seem like dwarves. And part of that was wanting to play to the idea that the dwarves are essentially resource barons, that, you know, the dwarves have economic power in a way they often aren't presented as having in other settings, despite sitting on all the gold and jewels and mines. Uh, but again, that wasn't a very interesting thing for a character to explore. And so what we wanted to do here was to find something that made them more sort of interesting and stand out without completely changing any existing lore. You know, that something that worked with the lore rather than just saying, oh, suddenly, you know, dwarves are green or whatever it is. And what we did was tie them. We'd always said in the past that the dwarves uh, had discovered essentially that their ancestors, they were exiled from a vast underground dwarven empire uh, and that they had recently rediscovered it, but it had been destroyed long ago by the Dalkir. And so it said, oh, there's a big dungeon down there. But, you know, it wasn't part of their culture. It was just sort of a, this is an interesting thing. We decided here to actually play that up a bit more and to say that when they dug down into this, uh, this ancient underground kingdom, they found that it wasn't just destroyed by the Dalkir and their forces. It was still inhabited by the Dalkir and their forces. That Durn the Corrupter has a stronghold beneath the Murrholds, 
and that you have these halls filled with Dolgons and Dolgrims and ancient, you know, both ancient dwarven relics and also symbionts and Dalkir creations. And the idea is that the dwarves basically, if you're a young dwarvish noble and you want, you know, sort of new territory, you got to go down and get it. You know, they are actively pressing down into the realm below and trying to push back the aberrant forces that are there. In the process, they are discovering and reclaiming, you know, and claiming symbionts and other Dalkir powers. And the idea is that roughly half of the clans, including Moranon, the founding clan, uh, or the, you know, central clan, uh, you know, basically think, consider this all abominations. They're clinging to the sort of artifacts that they are recovering, uh, but that there are other clans, including Clan Soldarak, among others, that are basically very much about the we're fighting fire with fire. We're going to take the tools of our enemy and use them against them. And so you have dwarves who over the last course of decades have been basically making symbionts part of their life and culture. So the picture that is in chapter, uh, you know, chapter one is a picture of a dwarf with a tentacle whip. And it's the idea that warlocks likewise are sort of working their way in there uh, because, again, they're tapping the power of the Dalkir. And so part of it is, is you have the classic dwarf if you want it, but you can also explore the idea of dwarves that are sort of exploring what we can do with the power of these Dalkir tools. And to me, that just gives us a very interesting new hook to play with. Yeah, it's not too different from, say, Karnath experimenting with undead, right? What can we do that, with undead? That's or, basically the idea of take something that is traditionally seen as a horrific thing and say, but we're going to use it in an industrial or useful way. And yet at the same time, there is that idea, but can you use it safely? Right. Or are they, in fact, going to be corrupted by so, this? So in your mind, mm -hmm. this lore change, how does that uh, affect the sort of common perception of dwarves across Corvair, for example? Well, you know, I'll point out that we have, I think it's in chapter two, there's a news story. Uh, because the book, one of the little fun things is there's newspaper clippings mm -hmm. scattered throughout it. And uh, there is a um, a newspaper clipping in the section on the Murrholds. I'm trying to pull it up real quick. Um, and that specifically uh, talks about uh, a, a Soldarak dwarf sort of showing up in his living breastplate. And uh, it's, of course, I will say when you're reading these, they're attributed to specific newspapers and uh the ones you do get the um uh the shrine inquisitive and the Korenberg chronicle which are pretty reliable but you also get the five voices the voice of thrain the voice of brayland <laughs> and they are the the sensationalist you know muckrakers so i will say here is the um uh, the the piece from the voice of Karnath headlined Roarholds birthplace of abomination <laughs> it's been exactly 70 years since the Iron Council declared the Murrholds independence from Karnath. King Caius II was newly seated on the steel throne and lacked the resolve to bring the dwarf lords to heel. Now we see the harvest we have sown and it is horrifying. Without the firm hand of Karnath to keep them on a righteous path, the Moor dwarves have embraced foul powers. 
Witness Lord Malice Solderak, seen in court this week for trade negotiations. His breastplate was forged from chitin and muscle, and it seemed to pulse with its own heartbeat. A guard present at the event said that Solderak's axe moaned when the blade came close to him, as if the weapon hungered for human blood. This is what springs from our mercy and forbearance. Who knows what horrors the dwarves are crafting or breeding in their mountain halls. We cannot stand by and let this vileness continue. For the good of our nation, we call on all true Karns to demand that Regent Morana unleash our full might on the Moorholds and cleanse this horror. Excellent. Now, <laughs> I will point out that, that one thing that did get dropped from these is the dates. Uh, I will point out that they are uh, urging Regent Morana to do this. So this is actually before Caius uh, III took power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and again, the point is, so that was, that was you know, a decade ago. Uh, so people have gotten a little more used to it. But it is still that point that it's it's like people generally still, you know, in Brayland, they're not going to be comfortable with the Karn walking around with his skeleton. Right. That it is you are using something that other people are frightened of. Now, again, you can play a Moran and Dwarf and have nothing to do with all of this, but it is just adding that element. Right. Uh, and similarly, if you're a Moran and Dwarf, you can still have the, but I want to fight to cleanse uh, the the realm below. And that's, again, just this little twist of in addition to making the dwarves more interesting, it has created a very accessible front line with, in which to engage with the Dalkir that Dern the Corruptor has a presence below the Murholds. So previously the Dalkir were kind of just the orcs problem. You had to sort of poke your head in the shadow marches to really draw them out. And this really draws it out and says, oh, no, there is a public place where, you know, people are actively fighting against aberrant forces. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting because you can also start thinking about how this might have impacted uh, events in the last war um, in terms of using those types of um, the symbionts in particular. Certainly, although at the same time, of course, part of the point of it is that the Murrah holds were not closely uh, involved in the last war no, so it no. wasn't like you know uh like you know they were fielding entire units of symbiont armed people no but i could see like harvesting or growing or mercenaries then, for sure then, yeah you know selling mm-hmm. or whatever yep uh so so speaking of during the corruptor mm-hmm. uh this is another little tidbit this actually is something that's communicated in the in the bestiary section but i'm kind of bringing it here because we're talking about races Mm-hmm. In third edition, we had it was, it was largely believed that changelings were descendants of doppelgangers and humans interbreeding, and so on. In mm-hmm. fourth edition, there were the same thing. There was no differentiation between the two. But now in fifth edition, mm-hmm. we have that doppelgangers were created by Dern the Corruptor from changelings, which I find fascinating. <laughs> well, part of the thing about it is uh, the idea of changelings sort of comes all the way from the original Eberron submission, which basically suggested the idea of playable doppelgangers. I've always loved shape changers, uh, and I've always found it interesting. And the issue is that doppelgangers have essentially more powerful abilities than you want to drop on a low-level character. So with third edition we ended up creating the changelings as this is sort of a playable, you know, player level doppelganger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and fourth edition just kind of said, ah, eh, they're just the same. It's just, you know, a doppelganger is a changeling scion, you know, or something like that. Uh, and here we sort of took that idea and said, yes, they are more powerful 
that's because something has happened. Uh, but also it does push them into the idea that doppelgangers essentially are monsters. Right. You know, in that sense that if you're a changeling, a doppelganger is this is something, you know, this is to you what the Dolgant is to a hobgoblin. That it is they've taken you and they've made your people into living weapons. Yeah. And a big part of this is just again, as I said, getting a little deeper into the Dalkir. Uh, this book deals with both Belashira, the Lord of Eyes, and Dern the Corrupter, who we've mentioned by name, but we haven't really dealt with much. You know, we've always said Dern the Corrupter was supposed to be the one who created the Dolgons and Dolgrims uh, and is the sort of most adept at physical transformation. Um, and this book, again, just sort of delves into it in more detail uh, both giving it a sort of more concrete presence, but also dealing more with these are other things it has created. It's created uh, the changeling, I mean, the doppelgangers. Uh, it may have been responsible for lycanthropy. Mm-hmm. You know, that lycanthropes might actually be the same condition of it might be shifters that were corrupted, uh, creating, you know, lycanthropy, which essentially is a weapon. Right. right. Um, and, and so the, that's just a broader thing. Yeah. By the way, I'm I, in my Ebron. I'm renaming doppelgangers to doppelgangers, Dope. just to keep with the dull. Nice doppelgangers. doppelgangers. I like it. Yeah. Uh, very nice. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. No, I, I thought that was really cool. Um, and and uh, the the other little line in that entry, and again, this is on I think page two eighty four, um, is that the idea that what Dern the Corruptor did is also unlock the latent psionic abilities of changelings. Right. Which which I find intriguing. Because this was always, again, part of the point, is that uh, third edition doppelgangers had detect thoughts as an at-will ability. And actually, the reason that third edition changelings, if I'm recalling correctly, it's been quite a while, have a natural proficiency for insight uh and deception and part of that was the idea that that's latent telepathy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they don't have full telepathy but they're good at reading intention and so here it's just sort of turned that around and said we'll make it the other way right nice um so anyhow the big question uh Mm -hmm. everybody wants to know i'm sure about dragon marks Mm -hmm. what's new with dragon marks so dragon marks largely follow the same approach we took in the wayfinder's guide uh, because generally they like that, that the, they are a subrace option as opposed to a feat. Uh, it's something where that way everybody gets to have one. Um, and that is to say, you can have it at first level. Um, in terms of things that are markedly different, one thing I will say just for everyone who's uh, all the, the half orcs uh, out there, that the mark of finding is back to being a human or half orc option. Um, but also they have – we dropped the greater dragon mark feats because, again, feats are an optional uh, thing. You know, don't want to have the concept too driven by that. Uh, what took its place is something called uh, spells of the mark that every dragon mark essentially adds – certain spells uh, as options. You know, basically, if you have any spellcasting class, it adds this list of spells to the spells you have available. So if you have the Mark of Healing, you could be a sorcerer or a warlock, you'll still have access to this list of healing spells. Now, 
for some people that has a, okay, but I'm a fighter. I'm not a, uh, you know, aren't I being robbed here? And part of the point is that the spells of the mark, they aren't given to you for free if you're a spellcaster. It's just saying they are options for you so you can always make a character who can do this thing. But the marks all do themselves have inherent spell-like abilities. Uh, you know, if you have the Mark of Passage, you do get to cast Misty Step, and you are just faster than normal people. You have a, you know, 35-foot uh, movement speed. It's just that if you also are a spellcaster, you're going to have access to, um, you know, to spells like Teleportation Circle. Right. Um, and... So it's not so much that it's it's you're robbed. It's just saying that we're making sure if you are a spellcaster, these are options for you. But again, they're not free for those spellcasters. Yeah. They're just available. And I think I think too, it's it's good to remember what we talked about in our Dragon Mark episode, where mm-hmm. the the thing about Dragon Marts isn't the mechanical benefit. It's the story behind it in terms of what it unlocks. It's a key, right? So that's and- that's where the value really is. And that's the big thing is that it is that point that there is the social understanding that having a dragon mark also gives you access to being part of that house, which has a story and meaning attached to it. It also gives you access to dragon mark focus items. There's some of these in uh, chapter five of this book. There's going to be more in exploring Eberron. Mm -hmm. And that that is the idea that that is a concrete benefit of the mark is you get to use these tools because, frankly, it's the tools that are what really give the houses their powers, not the fact that they can, you know, cast Misty Step once per day. It's that they're able to use uh, these focus items that are what drive the economy. So I think another good example of where story and Mm -hmm. mechanics come into play is with Aberrant Marks. Absolutely. Uh, So Aberrant Marks, you know, if anything, uh, have actually gotten a little stronger uh, in the... Um, in this edition, you know, now an aberrant mark increases your constitution score, gives you a choice of a cantrip and a uh, of a spell, you know, first level spell that you can both use once per short rest uh, and also burn a hit die uh, to sort of boost. And it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a really good feat. It is important that the whole point is in taking this feat. It's not just that you get this spell. It's that you get an aberrant dragon mark. And what's talked about in the section uh, is that aberrant dragon marks, uh, they they have a social stigma. You know, if you have an aberrant mark, certain people are going to treat you poorly. It is also the case that aberrant marks usually have a flaw. And there's a table suggesting flaws, or you can make up your own, but like one that's listed is your mark is a source of constant physical pain. Now, this doesn't apply an actual mechanical penalty to your character. It's just saying, think about it. Think of the idea that you have this thing, and yes, it lets you cast burning hands, but it also burns you all the time. You know, and it's just a story thing that that we want you to take these not just for the power but also to make it part of your story. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that <clears throat> I don't know if I, I, people who have maybe seen one of the other preview streams have, have been kind of looking at is uh, one of the prerequisites is no other dragon mark. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you look at that very technically, that could be any race. Um, yeah. Any race, um, just so yep. everybody knows, yep. you know, when you look at it, um, obviously we've we've sort of focused on, well, Aberrant Dragon Mark and Dragon mm-hmm. Mark and, and the mixing. And I know Keith's had several articles out and whatnot. Yep. whatnot. Um, but yeah, this is this feat has actually changed significantly. Um, you are, you're absolutely right. Uh, it is a very important thing to call out of it's true. In third edition, uh, it was the case that if I recall correctly, it was only dragon marked races. You had to be a race that normally carried a dragon mark. And now any race can have an aberrant dragon mark. You can be a goblin with an aberrant dragon mark. You can be a warforged with an aberrant dragon mark. Now the point is that is a change from the mechanics of third edition. It's not a change from the idea of aberrant dragon marks. The whole concept of aberrant dragon marks is that they're supposed to be entirely unpredictable, that we don't know why they appear on who they appear. And the idea of a warforged with an aberrant dragon mark is utterly bizarre. But <laughs> I do, in fact, have one in my novel, The Son of Kyber. Uh, so I'm just saying, you know, it is supposed to be that point. Is people are supposed to say, "Wow, I didn't think that could happen," and yet apparently it can. Please tell me that exploring Eberron is going to have a warforged with an aberrant mark on it. Uh, I don't think it does. I will oh. say that that dragon marks. There's a couple things we deal with. Aberrant dragon marks is not something that is one of the focus subjects. There are many, many things I would love to delve into in more depth, but some of them are going to have to wait for a future future book. Fair enough. Um, all right. Well, uh, another cool feature that uh, is in Chapter 1, uh, and this is something new. We haven't had this in any edition of, of Eberron uh, yet, and that's the group patrons. Yes. Which I think is amazing. That whole that Those entries are fantastic. So the idea of the group patron, and I will say a uh, shout out to James Wyatt, who did uh, almost all of the work on group patrons. Um, the idea of the group patron is the same way that a character gets a background, and that helps develop the background of you know the story and helps you give ideas, is that the group patron is saying, let's start at the beginning you know when we're doing our session zero and say what kind of game are we telling do we want to be spies do we want to be part of an adventurer's guild do we want to be templars working for the silver flame uh that it's basically this idea of you can develop it over the course of a campaign you come to work for this group and hey now you have them as group patron but also that you can just decide from the start, this is the kind of story we want. We want to say we're all part of the Boromora clan. And one of the things it does is talk about, okay, if you're making a Boromora clan party, what kind of characters make sense? What are the different roles you'd be expecting in this kind of group? And so I really, it is something where examples are given that are unique to Eberron, but it is a general idea that you could uh, use in any campaign. And I just think it's a really fun thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, <clears throat> I I did, I, I've been doing this for a while since whenever I run a campaign. Like I usually, what I do is I, I'll, I'll throw a patron in, I'll create a, a concept. Now this is, this is the DM creating mm-hmm. a concept mm-hmm. and be like, here's three ideas. This is how it's sort of, this is, sort of informs what kind of adventures and, and campaigns you're going to be playing. And I think that's really, I think that's really, really great in terms of people just going, okay, because we're all part 
you know, you want to do a very common one. You're all part of Adventurer's Guild. Mm-hmm. Go adventure. Yeah. But if you're part of a crime syndicate and you'd be like, well, these are the ma- the quote-unquote mafia, yeah. um, or you are, spoiler alert, um, your patron is an immortal being. Um, mm-hmm. Let's use, oh, Sora Kel. Yeah, let's. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, what are what are her goals? What And it's a completely different campaign. Sora's angels, saying, you know. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a completely different campaign than saying, we're working for the Dark Lanterns. Right. You know, we're all mm-hmm. Dark Lanterns. This is how this is supposed to work. Right. Um, and just by saying that, just by telling you, this is the patron, you already have an idea of what are their motivations? What are they going to do? What do they want us to do? And are they going to betray us or, or you know, it's everyone. There should be an inevitable betrayal. <laughs> but, uh, like those kind of things. And even just stuff, something like um, one of the, the, when I first read this um, a little while ago, the I read through the list and it's like newspaper. And I'm thinking, is that really going to be an interesting thing? And then you go back and go, you know what? Uh, other than the, the obvious, obvi- than the, other than the obvious, you know, pun here of pulp, but that's very, very much, that's very, very much keeping in line with the Eberron feel is that you're, you're little you're you're running your investigators your reporters your yeah. the the body the body for the newspaper that's that's a that's very very um and it's, it's something I, I would never have thought of using that but I'm like now you think about it like hey that's a really good idea oh yeah the the funny little detail about that is before wayfinders you know back in the sort of uh if you will drought between uh, the fourth edition Eberron book and and Wayfinders, uh, when I couldn't work on Eberron stuff, um, I started working on a new setting, uh, and that ended up being shelved uh, when I started making Phoenix Dawn Command. Um, but one of the elements of that was specifically that there was an essentially a sort of uh, parallel to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if you will. You know, it was sort of, again, the Library of Korenberg sort of situation uh, where they, you know, did an almanac. But part of the point was one of the, the drives for an adventuring party was you could be information, you know, search agents, if you will, for, uh, you know, for this book, trying to go around and gather things. Because, again... As reporters, you have an immediate, we, you know, you have something to find all the time. You know, you're investigating a story. You want to get to the bottom of it. You want to expose corruption. You want to do these things. And it's a different kind of flavor than uh, than being a spy, you know. And so it's not uh, a story for everyone, but it can be a really interesting thing to explore. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we should probably move along. Yeah, we so have time. <laughs> we are uh, we're about ten minutes to the hour, uh, and we've we've got a Barely lot to cover. Barely covered chapter one. So <laughs> oh my just, one just quickly, quickly touching. You know, the artificer. Uh, it is again similar to what people have seen in the unearthed arcana. Uh, it has been tweaked in a number of ways. I'm pretty happy with it. It it I like the system of infusions in particular that give it some of that flexibility of the original artificer of that sense of I'm making the right tool for the job. I do want to call out just really quickly. Some people have panicked seeing uh, art images or the fact that there's an artillerist subclass thinking this means Eberron is suddenly all about guns. Uh, The artillerist in particular has a feature called the arcane firearm. Uh, I will just say the first sentence of that feature is 
at fifth level, you know how to turn a wand, staff, or rod into an arcane firearm, a conduit for your destructive spells. Likewise, the first sentence of the artillerist subclass says, an artillerist specializes in using magic to hurl energy projectiles and explosions on a battlefield. The basic point is this keeps the idea that in Eberron, magic is a form of technology, and that you do have artillery, but the artillery is magic. Um, so there's nothing wrong with you flavoring an art, uh, an um, artificer to be technological if that's something you want to do, but it's not the default of the setting. It's still, this is a magical world. Yeah. Um, my quick comments. Mm-hmm. Artificer, love them. <clears throat> it's one of the... It's one of the classes that truly can really spread out its its abilities by ch- picking a different uh, uh, subclass. So three subclasses, um, they do very, very extremely different things. That's um, very true. That is that is a significant yeah. change from the UA version. They've and really the, baked uh, more of the the function into the subclass. Yeah, exactly. They've they've you've got an artificer that does a lot of things, but mm-hmm. their main offensive and defensive and focus more than any other class, um, you know, 13th class, more than any other class is being baked into the subclass and the specialist, specialist um, ability. It very much changes how you play them by picking a different subclass. If you're playing a fighter and you pick a, you pick a subclass, you're still a fighter. Yep. For Artificer, it kind of feels different. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so... Uh, just because we have like time running running out. Uh, yeah, well, I can I can give a, a real quick buzz on the the next couple, and then we'll we'll hit achieve. You know, chapter two is very similar overall to uh, the content in Wayfinder's Guide. It is a overall gazetteer of the five nations, uh, sort of aimed at both players and DMs, you know, giving you ideas and hooks. It goes a little deeper than Wayfinders in part because, well, you know, have more time revisiting the subject, you know, delving deeper. But also the real twist that is sort of, well, what's different about it is it really digs into what was the impact of the last war on each nation. And that's really kind of a theme of the book overall. It's rising from the last war, after all, of really trying to hit that point that we're only two years out from almost a century of war. And how has that affected what, you know, what will you feel either as a player or what are the physical sort of remnants or things you'll run into based on that? So that's sort of the twist to chapter two. Uh, Chapter three digs deeper into Sharn. Again, builds on what's in Wayfinders, but it has a number of just sort of useful things, tables that really sort of list uh, like, oh, here is a list of all the theaters, you know, here's a list of all the sort of interesting locations. And so it's just taking a little more information and presenting it in a useful way. Um, yeah, I really like and, that because it, it, it's, it's a good section on that, yeah. Chapter four is a really big chapter, and this is where Again, this book is more than twice the size of Wayfinder's Guide. Mm-hmm. And chapter four is where that sort of hits, of where Wayfinders was really aimed primarily at players. Uh, chapter four is, you know, largely pushed more at game masters. It includes a big section on the Mornlands, which delves deeper into what it's, you know, what are the adventures and stories you could do in the Mornlands. It has an adventure. Um one of the things that makes it different is it 
touches on all of the sort of secret organizations, you know, from the traditional ones we've always talked about, the Lords of Dust, the Chamber, things like that, but also some we haven't talked about as much, like the Daughters of Sorakel. Mm -hmm. And in addition to presenting the lore, which if you're an old-time uh, Eberronian, you will already be familiar with, there's a lot of just very hands-on, here's tables of adventure seeds or NPCs you might meet associated with these people. So it's Picking up on, I would say, the example of Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, of really trying to say, here's a lot of stuff, so you have 20 minutes to come up with an adventure, you know, roll on these three tables, and you've got something to work with. And speaking of which, there's similar tables for Planes of Existence. That is true. So uh, there is a slightly deeper section on the planes than in Wayfinders, and in particular, one of the things it goes into is uh, giving some options for manifest zones. Mm -hmm. Hmm, good word. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, manifest zones tied to um, uh, each plane. You know, so again, it's back to that, how does this impact an adventure? Uh, I will say this is a subject, obviously, I'm uh, going to go much deeper into in exploring Eberron. You know, there's still, it still doesn't get much into what are the, the sort of themes and unique aspects of the planes, but it's still more than we've had before. Yeah, and I know, like, for example, we've <laughs> seen a lot of posts that come up every now and then, like, oh, what would a manifest zone to such and such look like? And in uh, these little tables, will tell you exactly that. You have multiple options. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a great, you know, sort of start, and again, more yeah. than we've had in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, chapter five mm -hmm. dives into magic items. And again, this, this builds on what was in Wayfinder's Guide and takes it a little further. Uh, among other things, it does include Dragon Mark focus items, and it also includes symbionts. So these are living magic items that, you know, attach to a character. Uh, and this, again, is part of that, as I said, delving a little deeper into the Dalkir and particularly this idea that these are more common in the Murholds. Right, yeah. Um, there's, so, a, there's a couple of things I, I, I do mm -hmm. want to call out here. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite of the entire chapter. I love of course. flipping to the first thing when I get a book is magic items. Um, the arcane propulsion arm. Um, you literally throw your arm. It says throw. I know all of us are looking in, looking at a, you know, there's a blast. There's a, you know, little rocket thing at the end that throws it at someone. Um, it's pretty hilarious. So, so this is this is the point that uh, one of the common magic items it adds is the idea of a prosthetic limb, yeah. uh, and that is just a logical thing. You know, we have warforged, we have all these things. We've come through a terrible war that it makes sense that you'd have the prosthetic limb as a common magic item that you can attach to, you know, fill the function of a limb. Uh, and the arcane propulsion arm takes that a step farther and says, as long as you've got a limb, let's enchant it and allow you to shoot your fist at people. <laughs> so uh, um, let's dive into yeah. chapter six real quick. Um, I think there's right. some really cool stuff in there. Uh, in the best year. So chapter six is friends and foes, um, mm -hmm. primarily the best Jerry, but there's also a section for uh, generic NPCs. In the best Jerry, we got some really heavy sections for Delkir and Overlords, which is fantastic. And and that's part of the thing is third edition, the only stats we had for Overlords was in a Dragon article that right. I wrote. Fourth edition did have stats for Belshalor. Uh, and here uh, we, so again, building on that, we've covered Raktolkesh and, uh, excuse me, yeah, Raktolkesh and Solkatesh, mm -hmm. uh, the Rage of War and, and the Keeper of Secrets. 
And part of the thing here is it's not that we expect you necessarily to go charging in and fighting these things. Uh, it is simply that idea of giving a greater sense of what they're about and especially also personality goals, you know, just their nature. What are they striving for? How is that going to come out in their cults and their followers? And uh, similarly, Sol Katesh in particular is an excellent patron for warlocks um, and whether as PCs or NPCs. Yeah. And similarly with the Dalkir, we have Belashira and um, uh, Dern the Corrupter. And beyond, again, just their stats – it also talks about what kinds of madness do they inflict, you know, which the same way out of the abyss had uh, demons with things like that. We wanted to say, well, what is Dern's concept and what are the, uh, the experiences and such that someone touched by Dern is going to experience? Uh, and so there's just sort of it's giving them a little more. The original third edition just had a very generic Dalkir, you know, sort of stat block. And here we're saying, but Dalkir really are individuals. Yeah. They should be deeper and more interesting Agreed. than that. Agreed. One of the things I'll talk about uh, Dern on is that it was always the idea that he was the creator of the Mind Flayers. I've always said that he made them from the Gith, that mm -hmm. when they, they took the Gith world, uh, Mind Flayers are to Gith as, as Dolgonts are to Hobgoblins. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things about Dern, aside from the idea that he is a sort of telepathic entity and that he is sort of the cornerstone of the illithid, uh, you know, uh, shared consciousness there, uh, part of the idea is he basically has, uh, not sure quite how to say this, but mind flare heads for hands, that he has sort of tentacles around his wrists and sort of a mouth in his palm so he can sort of slap his head hand on your forehead and extract your brain with his hand awesome <laughs> so, we need more brain extractions than everyone that's exactly yeah. uh so uh homunculi there's you know we have the the two uh most common ones are expeditious messenger and iron defender expeditious um, messenger aka flying <laughs> you know flying, orange flying flies orange squirrel. Squirrel. that's right that's right <laughs> And um, I, I was a little sad to see only two because we've had more than that in previous editions. But that's true. What I do like is that that opens the door for more uh, DMs Guild content. Absolutely. So if anybody wants more homunculi, put them up there. And that is something that we didn't call out when we talked about the artificer is part of it is one of the infusions. The infusions that artificers can create are generally magic items. Uh, but one of the infusions is homunculi. And it has specific stats, and the point they say is you can make it look like whatever you want. So you decide the appearance based on the theme of your artificer. Nice. Yeah. Uh, we talked about living spells being magical constructs, and I do agree that that makes more sense than previously when they were oozes. Oozes. Uh, they are artificial things. You know, they are things that were created sort of, in this case, by the Mornland, but, you know— uh, it's still that idea that they took something non-living and made it living. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, that, I, I feel like that was a really wise change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you as, if you had the word magical constructs, because yeah. you know construct, it just makes sense. I mean, yeah. it's not a magical ooze; it's a magical construct. Um, for people who who you know heard originally when we talked about 
exploring Eberron as Raptor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are dinosaurs in the book. Be 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 glad. You know there are some dinosaurs. Uh, there's not a lot. There's only two of them. <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> it's the thing is, it's the two sort of core ones that yeah. the uh, the Talanta halflings are you know sort of rely on, mm-hmm. and so I'm glad that we have them. And there's some fun little flavor uh, bits about them. Um, so I, I thought it was, uh, no, I, uh, it was I think it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so the quarry had a major change. I, I see it as a major mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I suppose, uh, it is true. Quarry are, are now listed as aberrations. I still personally am probably going to consider them fiends in my campaign, but yeah, if anybody wants, uh, to, make, yes. wants to put up on DMs guild, a version that's non aberration. Well, I'm just saying you may see something. Someone might be doing December? that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that you is know. that is a change yeah. I'm not personally thrilled about, and and I understand the the theories behind it. You know, it is uh, making them feel alien, right. and that it basically all subtypes are different in every edition. There is no real concept of the outsider the way it was, and the idea is that. You know, in fifth edition, wizards seize aberrations as a form of outsider, and and that's fine. I still, because to me, quarry are spirits. You know, first and foremost, and frankly, less alien than I usually associate with aberrations. Uh, I don't really like that classification for them, but there it is. Yeah. And but speaking uh, of new things, yeah, the really big one. See what I did there? I do. Uh, I do see what you did there. <laughs> Warforged Colossus. So mm-hmm. uh, what's the story behind that? How did that uh, come about? It's just sort of this this idea of uh, playing around with things in the Mornland. And one of the, the concepts, because again, while there are stats for a Warforged Colossus that you could technically fight, it was more the idea that these were these sort of ultimate... Uh, you know, potentially war-ending massive constructs that that House Kenneth had just unveiled just in time for the morning to happen and, you know, them all to be destroyed. But it was this idea that going through the Mornland, you could encounter essentially what's a matter because there is, is the stats for it in the Mornland section, you know, this dungeon. That is basically a massive, <laughs> massive Warforged. I will say there's a picture of one that uh, uh, in the Warforged section, and it's not quite how I would present them. It looks like just a normal Warforged that just happens to be really big. And I think that, you know, I think they could they could have a more interesting appearance than that. Uh, but it is the idea that these are Warforged that are hundreds of feet tall yeah. and are just these massive War machines. There's that, there are. Yeah, I would say there's that illustration that was with the wallpaper bundle. Yeah, for Metro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there are two other things I think are particularly worth calling out. You know, we do cover a lot of the unique Eberron creatures, the Radiant Idols. Uh, again, you get three types of quarry as opposed to just the one that was in the original three five book. Uh, we add in the Hashalak and the Kalarak. Um, but in addition. Uh, two changes I'll note is we have a stamp block for Lady Elmero, mm-hmm. and uh, who I will note, you know, is uh, is is an ancient legend that goes into her legend and her story 
Uh, and that part of the point is we wanted this idea of this is like if you're in the Lazar principalities and uh, you're afraid that Lady Elmero is going to come for you, you know, if you're a bad child sort of thing. She's this legendary figure. Now, the fact of the matter, this will mean nothing to people who don't know the setting anyway, is that she is Arandis Vall. And that the point is, it was always this weird problem in third edition, because first off, Arandis Vall, everyone gets confused and thinks that she's tied directly to the blood of Vall, because there's the same name. That's not actually how it works. Uh, and there's a little sidebar in here, and don't worry about what it says earlier, because there's a sidebar in here that specifically talks about uh, Lady Elmero on the blood of Vall, but also that in theory, she's wanted criminal number one. Uh, for Aranol, like if they ever discovered she existed, it would be a huge thing. So she's not going to walk around using that name. And we wanted to really say, so what is she using? You know, and we've said the Queen of the Dead before, and she still is the Queen of the Dead, but we wanted a, this is who people, you know, the, the identity she has crafted for herself that you can use. Uh, so that was the thing. And the other thing is uh, that was a significant change is we changed the way uh, the Valinor interact with things. Mm -hmm. Of this was a deal if we had the Valinor horses. You know, it's always been the Valinor have these horses. Yet the thing is, as the setting evolved, we really moved away from the idea that Valinor are all about horses. It is that they are expert cavalry, but we're also like, but some of them are just expert commandos. Some of them, you know, they don't all have to do with horses. And so instead we played to the idea, the the myth that had come up was that in the ancient uh, battle against the giants, there was a, a you know order of druids who became animals to fight alongside and were then trapped in animal form. Uh, and so here we said, well, it shouldn't just be horses. We have a whole class of Valinar animals. So you have horse, but you also have hawk and hound as examples. And it's saying that these are magical animals that essentially the point is, just as as a Valinar, you have a bond to an ancient spirit, the animal has a bond to an ancient spirit too. One of the things I really like this uh, about this, apart from the versatility, is it also once and for all concretely explains why you can't breed them in captivity. Why is it that House Vidalis hasn't figured out a way to duplicate these? And it's because it's not genetic. It is a matter of you have to awaken the spirit in the animal. And if you're not part of the whole Terranidal culture, that doesn't happen. The spirit isn't going to answer you if you're some Vidalis trainer. Mm -hmm. And so it both expands what's possible, especially for Valinar characters, though technically other people could win the favor of such a creature. Uh, but if you're playing a Valinar who just, you're not really a horse guy, you have other options while still exploring that story. And like I said, it finally does really say, why is it that this doesn't work? It makes it more useful too in dungeon yeah. settings, which is nice. Uh, but that was another of those points where, as I said, we all got together and sort of tossed around ideas. And this is what we came up yeah. with. And I'm very happy with it. Was the uh, the alliteration? Well, I guess it's steed, not horse. It is steed in there. But, you know, it, it was all back to, again, what are some of the classic animals? But this is another point of DM's Guild, again, of, you know, nothing stopping someone oh, from yeah. making a whole bunch of other Valinor animals. Yeah. All right. And uh, the last thing I want to touch on um, 
is the uh, the Mage Rite, the little Mage Rite sap block oh, yeah. that's in the mm-hmm. generic NPCs. I, I like that. It was a nice touch. I think it was well done. I like that little uh, table that's in there for uh, different uh, spells and, and such. And that's always been something that's been important to me of with the Mage Rite. Uh, I like the fact that in 5th edition, cantrips and rituals are both good ways to explain how Mage Rites work. And I, of course, have pushed in, you know, this detail that Mage Rites have to spend money to do their rituals, you know, that there's a, a sort of economic factor here. But part of the point was just making this little table where there's eight different Mage Rite specialties described of giving examples of, uh, you know, what are common magic professions, if you will? What are some examples of these are people you could find, you know, in high? Yeah, it reminds me of the old article that was on uh, Dragon Shards mm-hmm. on the Watson mm-hmm. website where we, you know, the, that was explored, like the apothecary yeah. and things like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because I think most people think of mage rights as simply just like the mechanical mage right type of thing. Uh, but they really are a very diverse um sort of class. It's it's that point of it's someone who can cast a couple of cantrips mm-hmm. and one or two spells as rituals right. uh, and just stopping to think, again, if you're not an adventurer, if you're someone doing a job, what's an interesting combination of stuff? Oh, you're a locksmith. Well, okay, you've got mending because you can fix locks probably. Arcane lock, knock. Boom. Right. That's everything you want a locksmith to be able to do. You can fix locks, you can open locks, you can create magic locks. Yeah, you could be a, a mage yeah. right uh, entertainer uh, yeah. Working for one of the guilds for Fjarlan, right? Yeah. Like you know. Yeah, yeah, and you know, well, minor illusion, thaumaturgy. You can increase your voice. You can do things. You know. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, if you throw the word mage in there, I'm, mm-hmm. I'll, you know, someone, a lay person is going to be like, oh, they're going to be able to cast spells. No, that's that wasn't the point. And I know there's been ever since uh, I think ever since fifth edition has come out and everyone's come out. There's been a lot of there's been a couple of articles, not articles, uh, a couple of uh, uh, DMs guild things that'd be like, oh, this is what a mage right is, and this is the wand slinger, and you're like. Well, here, here's here's what Wizards thinks of it, and I think I like it. It's 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 a very nice thing. There's obviously more NPCs in this this area than that, but it's really the one that we kind of wanted to to highlight because yeah. that is that and, is something that you're going to run into. Yeah, and it's something that again is a very important part of Eberron, and this is again a topic that we'll certainly go into in more depth in exploring Eberron. But I also just like things like the idea of the medium, where the medium is described as having minor illusion and speak with dead. And part of the point to me is the point of them having minor illusion is what they actually use it for is to conjure up an image of the deceased. Uh, and you know, it's just again these things that that we have, how could you use them as practical tools? Very well done. Very well done. So a uh, good job, Keith, on, uh, on this project. I know you worked with others. We want to give Absolutely. Credit where, this, credit this in particular, lots of people ended yeah. up working on this. Yeah. So, but really, you know, James and Jeremy, uh, did so much to make this happen and Absolutely. it was very exciting to get to work with them along with everyone else who was involved. Yeah. yeah. I just want to acknowledge, um, all the play testers. I, I, I spoke oh, to yes. a lot of you. Yep. Um, Unfortunately, you don't get a credit in this book. It says many thanks to the hundreds of fans who played this, this book. Um, we appreciate you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I obviously I play tested. I, we had a team. We had I had two teams that were play testing. Um, we really appreciate that. Um, no, and I worked. I worked with <laughs> you know. a number of playtesters directly, both in my personal tables and just with people I interacted with online. And again, there was a lot of really important and really good feedback. And so, anyone who playtested uh, Rising, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, 
Yeah. Uh, I guess that wraps it up then. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Get out there and start playing it. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, and we look forward November to November nineteenth. Uh, everybody, to... go and buy the book, and uh, mm-hmm. you know whatever format you're gonna you're gonna buy it in, and uh, you know let us know. Let us know Absolutely. what you think. And I mean, and uh, you know I look forward to us talking about uh, rising. I not rising. Uh, exploring Eberron. Hopefully next month. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that one as well. So, uh, thank you all for listening. Be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode, find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages, and whatever option you prefer, let us know what you think of the show. And join us next time as we study the cultures of the orcs, their habitats, and their relationships with the other races. And until next time, keep exploring.